0: Good morning, everyone. Our key scripture this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 61 and 62. So we'll be reading from 61, 10 through 11, and 62, 1 through 3. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. And arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness, as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up, and a garden causes seed to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations." For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her vindication shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your vindication and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. We have uh, been in the season of Advent, looking forward to, uh, looking back at the coming of Jesus to this earth and looking forward to his return. And we have talked about the idea of anticipation, about how we eagerly await the return of Jesus. And I don't know if you have seen this in the scriptures as I have as we journey through this, but this idea that God is coming to restore, that God will one day come and make things right, that he will raise up his people, that he will restore us is something that is everywhere, everywhere in the scripture. And this anticipation that we look forward to the return of Jesus and the restoration that he can bring. This anticipation calls us to live our lives in a way where we aren't just living for today. We are living for the future that God has planned for us. If you have kids in your home or you had grandchildren in your home this week, you probably got to live out some anticipation with them. Um, My kids, you know, Zeke is 13 now, so he's pretty cool about everything. Um, He's a little like his dad in that, you know, he plays everything low-key. But Jed was pretty super excited about Christmas. And in particular, he could not wait to give Nisha and I the present that he had made for us, which was a watercolor painting that he did at school. And, and then they were anticipating going to Fresno, which I know sounds weird <laughs> that anyone would eagerly anticipate going to Fresno, but it's true. They wanted to beat their cousins to Fresno, um, and, and they wanted to be there with their family. And as these things grew closer, they, uh, they, they, were, they were just filled with anticipation and excitement. Our smallest dog, Pepper, was anticipating leaving Uh, She was was a nervous wreck on Monday uh, or on Tuesday morning when we were getting ready to go because she thought we were going to leave without her. Our house was ripe with anticipation, people. We were waiting for things to happen and just we couldn't wait for them to happen. For a great deal of Our history, for most of human history, we have been separated from God and God has made promises to us, to his people, all throughout time. He wants to save, he wants to bless, he wants to restore, and he wants to fulfill those promises. And the people of God are waiting for those promises to be fulfilled, are waiting to rise up out of this place to know healing and restoration. Because we live in this world and in this world we are away from god and life away from god is difficult and hard and so we live with this eager anticipation that we cannot wait to leave that we cannot wait for the reunion that we would have with god but we have to wait don't we and these words that we read in isaiah were expressing the hearts of the people from so long ago that they were waiting and waiting. And when you read all of this, what God will do, it's hard to ignore that there is so much waiting for God to come and to restore. And we still wait. We still wait for God to, to call us to be home with him. We still wait for the restoration that he has for us. But the one thing we cannot forget is that God cannot wait to bring that restoration to us either. He eagerly anticipates the reunion that he will have with us. And he cannot wait for the moment when heaven and earth will touch again through the miracle of Jesus. And he welcomes us home. All right, it's time for our two present children this morning to... (laughs) (laughs) Go to class. All right. Job, bud. Do you consider yourself uh, to be a patient person? Uh, I don't particularly enjoy waiting for things. I know that I'm not alone in this feeling that I don't enjoy waiting for things uh, because this is pretty much a, a basic human trait. I want you to think for a second about some of the terms and things that have developed over time around our lack of affinity, shall I say, for waiting. For example... Why does road rage exist? Uh, Now you could say, well, because other people are bad drivers, uh, you can blame it on a lot of things, but when we are in the car going somewhere, what is our objective? We want to get there, and when do we want to get there? We want to get there now. Uh, And everyone else on the road are obstacles, to our getting to the place that we want to go, um, there's been a lot of news over this last year, which you know is not shocking really to anyone about the DMV. Uh, we've always known that the DMV is a place where you go basically to do what? To wait. You go to wait. And it got to be so bad this last year that the DMV has actually had to try to restructure things to get people through these lines, these lines faster. Uh, If you go to Disneyland, you probably spend a good third of the day, maybe a third to half of the day doing what? Waiting in line. And you can get these passes that will help you wait a shorter amount of time, but there's just one problem. You have to wait in line to get the passes that will help you wait less in line later. So you're still, I'm not sure if it evens out. Now, we see this impatience with waiting particularly reflected, I think, in the tiny humans that we have brought into this world. And perhaps you remember or you were experiencing uh, all of the the questions that our children ask that are centered around their lack of desire to wait. Are we there yet? When will my friend get here? When is dinner? When can we open our presents? When is this? When is that? And you know, it's especially difficult before your kids really know how to tell time. Because you can't tell them, well, it's going to be at six or it's going to be in two hours because they have no sense of that. So you tell them, thinking in your head, well, it's going to be two hours. And you think, I'm not going to have to answer this question again for another two hours because now they know. But five minutes later, which is like two hours to them, they come back and ask you the same questions. Our kids are basically us without any kind of self-control or filter. They exhibit they exhibit some of our basest tendencies. And one of our most base tendencies as humans is we do not like to wait for things. Woe to the restaurant <laughs> that makes us wait longer than we think we should for our food. I, I think perhaps... One of the main reasons that we as adults do not like to wait for things is that when we are forced to wait for something, control of whatever this process is, is taken out of our hands. We are busy people. We have stuff that we want to accomplish. We want to get it done, and we want to get it done as quickly as possible. And let's just be frank. The things that we need to do are more important than the things that other people need to do. Our hurry is more urgent than their hurry. Our need is more desperate than their need. And having to wait on someone or something else takes away our sense that we are accomplishing something. It ruins our day. It throws us off. It puts us out of whack. We do not like to wait. But the Bible story is full of waiting. It is, it's full of waiting. And and as we talked about earlier this morning, you have God's people waiting for God to come and restore them. And on the other side of this coin, you have God eagerly anticipating and waiting to be reunited with the people that he loves. And that's what is so remarkable about Jesus in so many ways. Uh, Yes, Jesus came to this place to save us and redeem us and to offer us the love of God. But something that we can't put too high of an emphasis on is that when Jesus came here to live with us, there was a great reunion. There was this reunion of God and his people. Jesus, living here on earth, was the embodiment of God's love. And in so many ways, he was able to reestablish a relationship with humanity that God had been missing for so very long. And when you think about the way that Jesus did things while he was on earth, the way that he loved those who were not loved, the way he healed those who were suffering and afflicted, we we see in all of these things that Jesus did a reflection of God's great love for us. That this is what God wanted to do, to restore and to heal and to make things right again. God's people had been waiting a really, really long time for something to happen. And in particular, they had been waiting for the Messiah to come and to restore them as a people. They believed that when the Messiah came, he would restore the nation of Israel and make Israel The greatest nation on earth. And those that were living in the time of Jesus, they had this sense for who they used to be. Under the the reign of David, when there was no army that could stand against them. Under the reign of Solomon, when their temple was built for the first time, when they were in many ways a sovereign nation on earth, they had enemies but they also had God on their side. They had to be respected and taken seriously. But as you may remember from the story, as the nation of Israel moved further away from God, they also moved further away from being a legitimate nation. And all of a sudden, the enemies that were being defeated and falling under their feet were now taking control of them. They were defeated. Their city was destroyed. They were taken off into slavery. They, this group of people that were still, they've identified themselves as being slaves that were delivered from Egypt by God, had become slaves again after tasting what it was like to be this nation formed by God. And from the time that, that they were led off into slavery and taken over by these great empires of the world they longed for restoration and when you read the words of the prophets it's there is condemnation sometimes for the nation of Israel there is There are hard words about how they've left God and what they've done and where they went wrong. But there is almost always this idea that at some point God is going to return and restore them and raise them up. Raise them up so that all of their enemies will be defeated. So that everyone will look up to them again. So that they will be exactly what they want to be. The people of God. The nation of God. Against whom no one would be able to stand. So they kept waiting. And they waited. And one empire was exchanged for another. And then that empire was taken over and another one came in. And now, at the time of Jesus, they still have Jerusalem. They're still considered to be a people, but they are not in control of their own fate. They don't control their own destiny. They are still a people who, in many ways, are slaves. Under the Roman Empire. And they are looking forward to that day when there will be no one over them but God. And then Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus does what is to us, what are to us, amazing things. He performs miracles. He he heals people. He speaks about who God is. He brings, as I said, this love of God back into relationship with humanity. It It is amazing and it is dynamic, but there was one real big problem. He did not raise the nation of Israel over all of Israel's enemies. He did not overthrow Rome. He didn't even challenge Pilate. And then there is this one other really major issue. He died. And when he died, what could he no longer do? Restore them as a nation and be their king. Oh, sure. Jesus is raised from the dead. Great. Where is he now? Where is he now? Oh, he's in heaven. Well, that's convenient. We are still slaves. Look at everything that didn't happen. This is part of the mentality that the writers of the Gospels had to face when they started telling the story of Jesus. They weren't just trying to prove that Jesus was a good person, that Jesus did a lot of great things, even that Jesus was sent by God. They were trying to get a group of people who wanted Jesus to be something else to believe that Jesus was exactly what God wanted him to be and that he was bringing restoration to Israel even if it didn't look the way they wanted it to. Can you believe in a different kind of savior than the one you've been planning for? That's a tough question. Particularly when Jesus is so different from the king they had been looking for. So when Luke begins to tell his gospel, the story of Jesus, to those who have seen Jesus come and go, to those who are still looking to the horizon for the Messiah to come and raise them up as a people. He has to convince them that Jesus is exactly what God wanted him to be. So he tells two stories, all wrapped up in Luke chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up there. Now, Luke makes it very clear at the beginning of his gospel that he is writing for a very particular reason. He is writing to give an account that can be trusted. Um, This is the real story. This is really what happened. But remember, he's also making a case. All right? So it's the real story, but he's also making a case here for who Jesus is. So let's look in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 22. because this is not so important to us. But to Luke, who is Jewish and is writing to Jews, this small piece of information is really, really important. And there are two different things that are happening in this one event, and both of them are significant for a good God-fearing Jewish family to observe. And the first one is the purification of the mother at the temple. And the basic explanation here for you is this. Um, Blood, whether it came from childbirth or whether it came from a woman's cycle, um, made that woman unclean for a certain amount of time. And so God, in the law, gave instructions on how to purify someone, how to purify a woman when she goes through this. So uh, we're going to stay, we're going to be in Luke chapter two, but Leviticus chapter 12 gives us some background on this particular thing. The Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, a woman who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son will be ceremonially unclean for seven days, just as she is unclean during her monthly period. On the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised. Then the woman must wait 33 days to be purified from her bleeding. She must not touch anything sacred or go to the sanctuary until the days of her purification are over. If she gives birth to a daughter, for two weeks the woman will be unclean as during her period. Then she must wait 66 days to be purified from her bleeding. When the days of her purification for a son or daughter are over, she is to bring to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting a year old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a dove for a sin offering. He shall offer them before the Lord to make atonement for her, and then she will be ceremonially clean from her flow of blood. These are the regulations for the woman who gives birth to a boy or a girl. If she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And this way the priest will make atonement for her and she will be clean. Now, if you can put aside your feelings about male, female, you know, and how this is kind of unfair and doesn't seem right in our, in our day and age. Um, I mean, there's, there's some weird stuff in there. Right. It's what is most interesting to me, which we're not going to get into at this point in time, is that is how the period of time, um, if you have a girl, is different than it is if you have a boy. Um, so at any rate, this all of these things would happen um, after the, the birth of a son. So basically 40 days after the birth of a son or 80 days after the birth of the daughter. And what is important for us to note in this entire thing is that this was something that Mary was expected to do. Um, And she was following the law and paying respect to God. Excuse me. (coughs) She was following the law and paying respect to God by going and doing these things. And we also learned something else about Mary and Joseph. They are poor. So if there's any question as to you know, sort of their their social station in this world, they are poor. And we know that because what did they bring as an offering? They brought two doves, which means they couldn't afford to give a lamb. Um, and they were allowed this, this lesser offering because of, of being poor. Um, so Jesus comes into a very poor family. They're not necessarily esteemed. We know uh, that Joseph is basically a workman, that he, you know, is, works in carpentry. Um, but this family, what is something that they do? They follow God. And more importantly, maybe even than saying, because that's how we want to say it, they follow God, they follow the law. They follow the law. So besides a miraculous birth, this is something that they're doing. They're following the law, so Mary is going to be purified. Excuse me. (coughs) Something's in my throat. But there is more going on here than just Mary's purification. Um, Luke tells us that they have come to present Jesus to God. And this was a practice that families would go through with, uh, in particular, their firstborn sons, which was called, it's called the redemption of the firstborn. So this comes from Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 2 and 11 through 13. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you, as he promised on oath to you and your ancestors, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. So this is an interesting thing that God laid out for his people to do to remind them of something, okay? So with every firstborn son, they are to bring that child and dedicate that child to God. And they're even supposed to do it with their animals. You know, The firstborn from these animals, you are to come and bring them before God. And why is it that God put this practice into place? What do you think? Why would God put this into place? What's that? Passover? Okay. Why would God put this into place? Yeah? <clears throat> so you and your husband or you and your wife, y- you get pregnant. You have your first child. It's an amazing moment for your family. There is much celebrating and rejoicing. But then what must you do? You must take that child and you must give them to God. Consecrate them for God. And what does that remind you of? It reminds you of who God is. This is not your child. This is God's child. And you are going to give God your child. The firstborn of both people and animals were to be dedicated to the Lord. The animals were sacrificed. The children were not. So everybody calm down. Um, But they were, these firstborn children were given to God so that they would serve God through their entire lives. Um, They didn't have to go and and become priests or anything like that. The the Levites, the tribe of Levi, they actually served in the place of uh, all the people, served God in the place of all the people. Um, But the other thing that they had to do was they had to pay five shekels to the temple treasury in order to redeem the first child. So you would not just walk into the temple and say, you know, here's my child. You would do that. This is my firstborn. We dedicate it to God. And then you would give something or sacrifice something uh, to God. Now, it's easy to overlook those things and what comes next, but Luke, again, is making a very specific point. Jesus and his family are fulfilling the law as they should. Uh, let's pick it up in Luke chapter 2, verse 39. And, and listen to this statement. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Luke wants his readers to see that the family of Jesus is a devout family that does whatever it is that God requires of them. Not the bare minimum, but they did, did you see it? Everything. They did everything required by the law of the Lord. Jesus, who as a boy was obedient to the law, came from a family for whom obedience was an unargued assumption of life. In this, Jesus' family fulfilled the Jewish ideal that believed one of the family's main functions was to follow the law and to raise their children to follow the law, who would then raise their children to follow the law. And just as importantly, they would respect the law and want to do the things that God had put into place to remind them of who he is. They want to do this. This is the family that Jesus was called into. Now, why is that such an important message for those who are trying to make sense of Jesus? Was Jesus a rebel? Well, yes, he was. But he also wasn't. It was a trick question. Usually I tell you if it's going to be a trick question. In many ways, he was. But understand this, because this is important. The ways that Jesus, the things that Jesus rebelled against was the way humanity did things. That's where he was a rebel. But the things that Jesus upheld and did not rebel against were all the things of God. Whatever it was that God had asked, Jesus did all of those things. And there's also this sense when Jesus is brought to the the temple that there's this sense of dedication that they were going to dedicate Jesus to God. And I wonder what what that was like for Mary and Joseph, you know, because they've already, they know that Jesus is already the son of God, but they're still doing this, right? And I wonder what that conversation must have been like. God, here he is. Here he is. Just like you promised. And here we are. Giving him to you. But within this context of Joseph and Mary fulfilling the law as a family and doing the things that they should, something really important happened. Um, an ongoing theme throughout the beginning of Luke is. Confirmation of who Jesus really is through uh, witnesses and testimony. And so in Luke chapter 1, you have the angel appearing to Zechariah and to Mary, John leaping in Elizabeth's womb, the angels appearing to the shepherds and uh, the song of heaven, the shepherds in turn going to witness the birth of the child and, and and to see him and telling everyone about what they have seen. So within the story of Jesus, um, Jesus' family doing all these things they should, guess what Luke puts in there? There are witnesses. And in particular, what are these people witnesses to? Well, what is Luke trying to prove? That Jesus is the Messiah. So what needs to be a part of this story? Those that see Jesus even before he was Jesus and recognize who he is. So let's start in verse 25. We're going to do 25 through 32, and then 36 through 38. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required... Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Then in verse 36, There was also a prophet Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then had been a widow for 84 years. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying, coming up to them at that very moment. She gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So, they bring Jesus to the temple to do what they are supposed to, and they walk in, and what happens? How many of you have ever you, you remember, you know, when your babies were really little and someone would see the little baby like strangers? You remember this? And they would want to touch your little baby. And it's like, I don't know you. What do you what do you think you're doing here? So Mary and Joseph come into the temple and Simeon sees them. Now, there are some important things we need to understand about Simeon. Number one, God has given him a very specific promise, which is what? He will see the Messiah. Number two, the Holy Spirit is on him. Okay, so why is that an important note for Luke's readers to hear in the context of this story? It's confirmation. Well, it, what it means is we can trust what Simeon is about to say because he's been promised by God and he has the Holy Spirit, which means that if anyone in the temple courts is going to recognize who Jesus is, it's going to be Simeon. It's going to be Simeon. So Simeon sees them coming in with Jesus, and I imagine he runs across the square. Grabs Jesus, lifts him up into the air. Yeah, right. It's 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 an interesting moment. But he was moved by the Spirit to be there that day. He goes in. He takes Jesus into his arms and he begins to praise God. But look at what he says. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. which you have have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Remember, what is it that Israel was waiting for? the nation to be restored by the Messiah so that everyone would see how amazing and important they are. And what does Simeon tell them about Jesus? This is not just happening to some small family from this small town that no one is ever going to hear about. Instead, these things that are happening with Jesus are happening how? In front of the world. That everyone... That everyone will see. This is happening being, it says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Listen to what Lucas is telling his audience through this story. You think Jesus can't be the Messiah because this, this, and this didn't happen. But listen to what Simeon recognized about Jesus when he first saw him. There is restoration. God's people are being lifted up. The whole world is going to see it. And it is going to bring glory to the people of Israel. That the Messiah has come. And then we have Anna. So Anna has lived... I don't know how to explain it, this extraordinarily weird life where she stayed in the temple night and day, fasting and praying, waiting for what? The redemption of Israel. The restoration of her people. And she has been doing this in some form for 84 years That's longer than you have to wait in line at the DMV. (laughs) Although it feels like you age 84 years waiting in line at the DMV. She sees what's happening with Simeon and she is a prophet of some lineage. The people that heard this story, they would probably know who Fanuel was. And she was very old, and she comes up, and what does she do? In verse 38, she, give thanks, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking for what? The redemption of Jerusalem. So here's what Luke is telling, this story that he is telling. He is telling a story of promises that are being fulfilled. And they are being fulfilled in the lives of Simeon and Anna before Jesus can even speak. Before he has done anything, God is already fulfilling promises through him. And beyond that, though Jesus may look different than what they wanted him to look like, though he didn't do things in the way they thought he would, he is still fulfilling the promises of God. Because he's bringing about the redemption of Jerusalem, the salvation of his people, the revelation that will bring glory to the nation of Israel. But Luke recognizes through the words of Simeon, that the path to restoration is going to be a difficult one. Verses 33 through 35 say this, The child and father marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. So, Jesus, this baby, is going to do these amazing things, but what else will he do? He will be a divisive figure. Simeon revealed to Mary that her son would be opposed. That he would have enemies. That he was going to, and this is, think about this, reveal the truth Of people's hearts. Can you be on board with the restoration that God is bringing or not? Throughout his ministry, Jesus proclaimed that the only way to the kingdom, the only way to restoration, the only way to the glory of God was to follow him. The ones who did so would receive salvation, they would rise, but the ones who did not believe him would not receive salvation, and therefore they would fall. But people were going to have to decide about him. There was no, there were no, there was no in-between with him, you see. Either he is the son of God who is bringing restoration to the world or he is a complete lunatic who has visions of glory. Either he is establishing the way that God wants things to happen here on earth or he's tearing down everything that God has done. Either he's the fulfillment of the promise or he's going to bring destruction to the people of Israel. What do we learn from the story? Well, we're still waiting. Aren't we? We're still waiting for God to come and restore. And though the objectives of this restoration may be different for us than they were for Israel, we are still slaves in this place. We are still Opposed by the world and everything in it. And while we are offered freedom from sin and death, we are still waiting to be restored to our God and to be with Him as He wants us to be. But in the middle of all that, we can't forget that from the very first moment Jesus shows up on the scene, God is fulfilling his promises. God does not make a promise to us that he will not fulfill. God does what he says he will do. And maybe we, like Simeon and Anna, are waiting and praising God and asking him to come soon. Or maybe we're like those who were just there that day who get to see the excitement and the joy. But we are waiting for the movement of Jesus here on earth. And I want to be more like Anna and Simeon than I want to be like someone else who was just accidentally there. I want to be looking for the Messiah to come back. I want to be waiting. I want to be worshiping. And more than that, because I am looking and I am waiting and I am worshiping, I want to see him when he comes. And not be like those who would say, well, they're just a poor family from Nazareth. And he's dead. So he can't be this. I don't want to be like those who in their own minds had already decided what God was going to do and how he was going to do it and, their, and then missed him completely. I don't want to be like that. I want my eyes to be open and ready and I want them to see. I want my ears to hear. I want to be waiting in the temple for God to come. Amen? Amen. So let's not grow weary of waiting. In fact, I would say, let's get better at waiting. Let's get better at waiting, at knowing what we're in line for, of seeing what's up in front of us, at staying dedicated and focused on what God has promised us because God is going to fulfill that promise and one day we will leave this place to be with him. Amen? Let's pray. God, will you help us to not lose our sense of anticipation? In fact, God, will you help us to rediscover anticipation? Will you help us to wait more actively? Because we are those who expect Jesus to return. We are those who believe in the promises that you've given to us and we know that you are a God who fulfills his promises. May we live with the future in mind and may that future that you are holding out to us, God, inform everything that we do and say. May it inform our decisions. May it make us who we are because we are not living for this place. We are living for your promises. So may we say, come, Lord Jesus, and mean it. In his name we pray, amen. If you have any need for prayers or encouragement this morning, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.